0: Good morning friends, it's good to see you all this morning. uh, We had an eventful week here at Sun Valley, Uh, I always love VBS week, Uh, it brings a little life to the office and uh, to be able to come in here and hear hear the kids sing the praises of Christ uh, and to learn the things of Christ always brings uh, joy to my heart. Uh, So if you served this week or if you participated, uh, I appreciate you and what you did. It It was encouraging to me. The conversion of Saul on the Damascus Road is one of those key points in all of Christianity. We've probably read this story or heard this story many times throughout our life, and often we can forget its relevance and the importance of what takes place. This is so much more than just a good story. This is meant to help us in our pursuit of Christ. Biographical accounts like this one are meant to motivate us and push us towards likeness. That's why the book of Acts is so important. Acts shows us what theology looks like in action. We can read the theology books of Hebrews and Romans and Corinthians But unless it leads to action, friends, that's just dead theology. But here in Acts, we see theology in action. None of us in this room have experienced what Saul did on that road. But the result of what happened to Saul should no less be the same in our own lives. The vision of our glorified Christ was one that changed him. It changed how he acted. It changed how he talked. It changed his affections. It changed the whole of his life. So, Lord willing, this morning, as we work our way through this story, we can see that an awe-inspiring vision of our glorified Christ will result in humble submission to who he is, that there will be joyful unity with his church, that we be faithful in our gospel proclamation and compose in an endurance in the face of trials. Here in Acts 9, God is taking a man who is vehemently opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and transforms him into the greatest ambassador of the gospel that this world has ever seen. And many of us in this room, in fact, I would argue that all of us are in this room because of what happened in Acts 9. God used Saul, transformed the life of Saul, and he would go out and preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and then it would continue and continue and continue to this day. This is a monumental moment in the history of the church. In Acts 7 and 8, the Jewish leaders had finally hit their breaking points with the church. Stephen is killed, persecution arises, and this persecution, unintentionally by the Jews but intentionally by God, spreads the church from Judea to Samaria and eventually to the ends of the earth. The ringleader, of course, is Saul. This is the guy. And here, in Acts chapter 9, God is going to change his heart. And so, we look at the journey of Saul to Damascus in verses 1 through 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. First thing on this journey is we see the range of Saul's brutality. Saul's range of brutality. Saul was the one that gave authority to the murder of Stephen. And not only that, but he was the one going door to door. He was pulling men and women out of their homes and taking them to prison. And then when he had taken them to prison, he casted their vote against them in order that they may be killed. Similarly, he would go into the synagogues and he would beat the Christians. And then, while he was doing that, he would try to get them to blaspheme the name of Christ. In Acts 26, as he's recounting his story to King Agrippa, Paul says that he was doing all of this out of raging fury, literally meaning that he was insanely obsessed with the church. He was insanely obsessed with the church. He was not okay with just one Christian dying. He wanted the whole of Christianity to die. And so he was willing to go 130 plus miles to Damascus to round up these Christians and bring them back to prison. He would go all the way. He would go across the globe if he needed to. This week-long journey would be transformative in his life. See, Damascus was an important city, still is an important city. It was an important city uh, on a trade route between Egypt and Mesopotamia. And there was a large Jewish population that was there in Damascus. And so, Saul understood that if Christians keep moving out, that they they will infect the synagogues there. And so, he goes to the chief priests and he asks for letters, giving him the authority to bring these Christians back. We see the extent that he was willing to go to. And next, we see Saul's encounter with glory. Saul's encounter with glory, verses 3-9. through There's a lot that can be said in this small little section, but I'm only going to mention three things. First, we need to take note that the person who is speaking is none other than Jesus Christ. That seems like an unnecessary comment. Like, we just read that. I am Jesus. It seems like an unnecessary comment. But it's essential in understanding what's happening in the life of Saul in this moment. You see, Saul was now in Damascus. He wasn't in Jerusalem. He was chasing Christians, and they wouldn't stop. He thought persecution would end this Christian mess, but it only emboldened it further. Saul wasn't at peace. He thought he was doing the Lord's work BUT THE CHURCH ONLY CONTINUED TO GROW. IN ACTS 26, 14, AS as PAUL IS RECOUNTING this, THIS AMAZING THING THAT HAPPENED TO HIM ON THE DAMASCUS ROAD, HE ADDS ONE MORE THING THAT JESUS SAID TO SAUL. JESUS SAYS, SAUL, SAUL, WHY ARE YOU PERSECUTING ME? IT'S HARD TO KICK AGAINST THE GOADS. GOADS WERE SHARP STICKS THAT WERE USED TO PROD OXEN. So, if they kicked back, it would obviously hurt them. And Jesus is asking Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against your conscience? Persecution wasn't working, but what does this have to do with Saul's conscience? Well, friends, we need to remember that Saul was brought up under the teaching and tutelage of Gamaliel. He mentions that in Acts 22. Gamaliel was a well-respected teacher in Israel at that time. And it was Gamaliel who said in Acts 5, 35 through 39, as they were standing before the Sanhedrin and as they were debating whether or not they should kill Peter and the other apostles, it was Gamaliel who said this, men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. For these days But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may be found to be opposing God. No doubt these words were running through Saul's ears as he was on his way to Damascus. Am I opposing God? I thought this would end Christianity. It's not working. So, you can imagine the feeling Saul experienced when he heard the words, I am Jesus. He was looking on the glorified Savior. The one he was trying to end was now standing before him. Christ is risen. He was trying to snuff that out. He is alive. He is before me now. Saul was laboring in vain kicking against the goads. But this is exactly where God wanted Saul to be. His conscience was troubled. He was not sure about what he had done in his life. All the effort, all the work, all the labor was all for naught. And the grace of Christ enters in. I am Jesus Now Saul, along with us, can sing the song that we just sang. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite, no, could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Secondly, in this section, we see contact with with the glorified Christ results in abject humility. Contact with the glorified Christ results in abject humility. This is the fourth time that we're going to see Christ in all of his glory in the New Testament. We saw him at the Mount of Transfiguration. We see him with Stephen in Acts 8. We see him here in Acts 9 with Saul. And then we won't see him again until Revelation chapter 1. And when people come in contact with the glorified Christ, they're floored by it. This is the Apostle John speaking in Revelation chapter 1. From his mouth came a sharp two edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. Now Saul lays prostrate before Christ. He fell down before the glorified Christ as though he was dead. And this vision blinded him. Friends, the more we gaze upon the glory of Christ, the more humble we will become. That's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And all we with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So friends, how is your pride? your anger, your bitterness, all those things. The answer to fixing that problem isn't just being a nicer person, trying harder. The answer to our pride issue is looking upon the glorified Christ. That's what changes us. We cannot lose that vision. Paul, or Saul, is a changed man. This man who walked into Damascus, who was going to take away Christians, and bind them and bring them back, is now bound with blindness and being led into Damascus. Simon Christemacher says this, Paul, who desired to dash the believers to the ground, is lying face down on the ground. He who wished to bring prisoners bound from Damascus to Jerusalem now is led as a prisoner of blindness into Damascus. He who acted with the authority of the high priest now breaks his ties with the Jerusalem hierarchy. He who came to triumph over the Christian faith now submits to the captain of this faith. Thirdly, we see that Christ associates with his church. Christ associates with his church. Friends, Jesus is a merciful and kind Savior, isn't he? He's also a merciful and kind Lord. We can't separate the two. We can't just say, Jesus is kind because he's my Savior, and then he's angry and holy over here. This is not Jesus meek and lowly that associates with the church, this is Jesus high and holy. This is the resplendent Jesus who reigns in all his glory that is now associating with the church that's being persecuted for its faith. Augustine once said, as Christ's body is pricked on this earth, the head cries out in heaven. The Lord knows this pain and he associates with his church because he too was persecuted. He was maligned. He was beaten. He was tortured and ultimately killed. And he doesn't leave us there. Friends, he's going to make it right. We simply have to believe that Jesus is there in the midst of our trials with us. Saul has this amazing vision of the glorified Christ. He's blinded by what he just saw, but he walks into this city. He's led into this city a changed man. But now... It's time for the church to act and accept this new brother in Christ, and we see that next with the test of Ananias. The test of Ananias. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. Go. First thing that we notice in verses 10 through 12 is the call of Ananias. Ananias is called. In, in Acts 22, Saul, or Paul recounts this man named Ananias, and he was a well-respected man among the Jews in Damascus. He was well-trained in the law, and this is the agent in which God is going to use to transform the life of Saul. But in this call, we'll notice the language. Notice the language. This is, this is common language that's used in Scripture. God speaks. He says a name. and The person responds with, here I am. And what always follows is a massive test of faith. Think about Abraham, Genesis 22-1. We've, we've brought this chapter up numerous times in the last couple months. Genesis 22, God calls Abraham. Abraham says, here I am. God says, go kill your son. Go sacrifice your son. Not just any son, but the son in whom you loved. He was very specific. Not Ishmael. Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, is called by God. And he says, I'm going to destroy the house of Eli. Samuel is now to act in faith and tell Eli what's about to happen. And now here, in Acts chapter 9, Ananias is specifically called to go to Saul. The streets called straight, which is still in Damascus today. The street called straight, go to the house of Judas, enter into that house, lay your hands on him, and let Saul receive his sight. The specifics are unmistakable, and the double vision that's described here uh, signifies the certainty of this event that's about to happen. Nevertheless, Ananias is to respond in faith. God calls a man, the certainty of this event is going to happen, yet Ananias has to respond in faith. And so, we see Ananias' response in verses 13-17. through Ananias responds to God, God responds to Ananias, and then Ananias responds to God. We can understand Ananias's bewilderment, can't we? This is Saul, God. This is Saul. He is the persecutor of the church. His reputation has preceded him. People are talking about him. People knew him. People were afraid of him. This is Saul, God. You understand who this is. But friends, in God's playbook, it's those people whom we think least likely to be saved are the ones that God chooses to do so. Think about the demoniac, the dude with a legion of demons inside of him, the crazy guy on the outside of town. Jesus showed up to him. He went to him. The woman at the well, Jesus meets her at the well. The thief on the cross. He meets the thief on the cross. The people we think most unlikely to be saved are the ones that God thrives to save. can't tell you how many times I've returned to high, my high school and my old teachers come up to me and are shocked at, at the transformation that's happened in my life and they have every right to believe and understand that. Not only that, but they're... they're almost dumbfounded that I work at a church. There's no hopeless case under the cross of Christ. Jesus Jesus himself said he came to seek and to save the lost, the brokenhearted, the sick, not the righteous. So friends, Who are the people in your life? You know who they are. Those people who are, quote unquote, unsavable. Father, mother, brother, sister, friend, co worker, you know their name. God can do miracles. And God responds to Ananias. Ananias responds with hesitancy. God responds with certainty. God was going to use Saul for his glory. Saul was going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And what's so fascinating about what happens here in Acts chapter 9 is that God doesn't save Saul in Jerusalem. God doesn't save Saul in Israel. God saves Saul in a Gentile city, in a Gentile nation. Everything that Saul ever knew is gone. It's over. Everything that he's stroven for is over. He's a new man, and he's going to be used by God to go out into the world to the Gentile people. He was going to stand before kings, the Jews. He was going to give a testimony for what he had seen and heard and what he believed, which inevitably would result in immense suffering. Second Corinthians eleven, you want to know how much Saul has suffered? That's just a snippet of it. it didn't make what Saul went through easier. but he could look upon the glorified Christ and he could come to understand that that light momentary affliction that he was experiencing on this earth does not compare to the eternal weight of glory. And then Ananias responds in obedience. God says, go, and so Ananias now responds, he goes. And you can imagine the trepidation that he felt as he entered into the home. THIS WAS THE MASS MURDERER. HE WAS THE KILLER OF CHRISTIANS. BUT HE GOES. AND NOTICE WHAT HE SAYS TO SAUL. HE DOESN'T SAY, SAUL. HE DOESN'T SAY, SIR. HE SAYS, BROTHER. BROTHER SAUL. Once an enemy is now a part of the family. This is his brother. Ananias is often a forgotten character in this story. He's mentioned in Acts 22, and then we really don't hear anything from him. In fact, we don't hear anything from him. Acts 9 and Acts 22 but he plays an integral part in the history of the church. He was obedient to God's call on his life. He responded in love towards Saul, and Saul was the recipient of change because of it. We need the spiritual giants. We need the Sprouls, the MacArthur's, the Luthers, the Pauls. They all have their place in the church. But what we need less of is people trying to be those guys and more people who are obedient like Ananias. We need to be more forgotten than we are remembered. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Ananias played an integral part in this transformation. Christ is glorified in using nobodies to change the lives of somebodies who are going to change the lives of millions. That was Ananias. And immediately we see the transformation of Saul in verses 18 through 25. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc, made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose? to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in the basket." The first thing that we take notice of is Saul's new identity, Saul's new identity. His sight is restored. He is filled with the Holy Spirit, and there's two things that he does. He immediately is baptized. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. He goes to the waters of baptism. In fact, it's Ananias in Acts 22 that tells him to do this. He says, get up, Saul, what are you waiting for? Go to the waters of baptism. Being new in Christ, Ananias and Saul understood that the waters of baptism were an essential part in our association into the body of Christ. It's not just for the person who is being baptized, it's for the whole of the church. We are declaring to each other and to the world that I am dead to sin and alive in Christ. I am a new creation because of what Christ has done in my life. This is an important step. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Saul wanted to identify himself with the body he had just been persecuting. An enemy is now a part of the body, and he does that through baptism. Secondly, he does that through his fellowship. Saul doesn't leave. He understands the importance of fellowship with the believers. It says that he remained there many days with those who were there in Damascus. He stayed with the disciples. This was his new family. Everything he had known up to that point was gone. The Jews didn't want him. And where is he going to go? He goes to the church. Saul understood that he needed the church just as much as the church needed him. The same goes for us. Friends, We need you here. Not just here on Sunday mornings, but in intimate, deep fellowship with one another. That is one way in which we can see and savor the glory of Christ, it's through the fellowship of the saints. I need brothers speaking into my life and pointing me to Jesus. And so do you. But as long as we remove ourselves from the church, that won't happen. Secondly, we see Saul's new message. Saul's new message 20 through 22. Saul's new identity new identity necessitates a new message. Being an ardent Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, the strictest law Jesus being the son of God would never have rolled off of his tongue. That was heresy. That was heresy. In fact, that's why he's there. The reason why he showed up to Damascus was to remove these Christians who were proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. But on the road to Damascus, Saul had endured, or not endured, had seen the second member of the Trinity. He didn't see just another God, he saw God. And so, the only thing that he can do now is proclaim Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who came to save the world. Friends, the saving grace of Christ should change our tune. It should change the things that are coming out of our mouths. If we understand who we were and all that we have in Christ because of what he's done for us, then the message should naturally flow from our mouths. You were a chosen race, Peter says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friends, the more we dwell on those things, the more we will naturally speak of them. Gospel proclamation is not an option. It's not an option. There's nowhere in Scripture, old or new, that says that you don't have that option. Moses tried to get out of it. That didn't work. God used Balaam's donkey. He certainly can use you. Saul immediately goes to work. And it doesn't just stop here in Acts 9. It doesn't just stop in Damascus. It goes from Damascus to Jerusalem to Asia Minor to Greece to Rome. His whole life was consumed with preaching Christ. And the only way he was able to do that was this all-consuming vision that he had. It never left him. Secondly, we, or thirdly, we see Saul's new standard in verses 23 through 25. In between verses 23 or 22 and 23, Saul spends some time in Arabia. Uh, we, we get that from Galatians 1:17. He, he goes off and spends some time in Arabia. What he does there or how long he is there, we, we don't really know. We, we can only assume that he was probably spending some time in deep fellowship with Christ and proclaiming the gospel. But he returns back to Damascus here in 23, and it's now the hunter versus the hunted. He entered Damascus hunting Christians, and now he's back in Damascus hunted. He is the prey. The gospel that he found offensive in its exclusivity and damning in its objectivity is the one that Saul now boldly proclaims without hesitancy. And the world is hates it. The world hates the light. The world hates the light. They hated Jesus because Jesus was the light of the world. They put him to death because he was the light of the world. Friends, if we preach Christ, we are preaching light into darkness. And the darkness will try to put it out. But we must understand that we cannot just give in to the world's demands. We have to continue forward. We have to continue proclaiming. And the only way that we can do that is if we have this vision of Christ ever before us. Saul experienced this new standard of persecution. This was his lot in life. And he was going to be faithful unto the end. In fact, he was killed for his faith. His head was chopped off in Rome. He was willing to go to the grave. For Luther, the persecution the church endures is a sure sign of faithfulness in the church. Murderers and thieves, he says, receive better treatment than Christians. The world regards true Christians as the worst offenders for whom no punishment can be too severe. The world hates the Christians with amazing brutality and without compunction commits them to the most shameful death, congratulating itself that it has rendered God and the cause of peace a distinct service by ridding the world of the undesired presence of these Christians. We are not to let such treatment cause us to falter in our adherence to Christ. As long as we experience such persecutions, we know all is well with the gospel." Saul was able to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and face the possibility of death because he had that enrapturing vision of Jesus before him. But his time in Damascus has come to an end. He's let out of a window and really chased out of town and he returns back to Jerusalem. He returns back to Jerusalem. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how uh, at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Saul's return journey to Jerusalem. It had been three years since he left. Again, we get that from Galatians 1.18. It had been three years since Saul left. And there was an amazing transformation that took place. Three years. His time in Jerusalem is, is so similar to his time in Damascus, so I'm only going to make a few comments here. Uh, but what I want to see here is that Paul, Paul left as an enemy of the church and he returned as part of the family. Verses 26 through 27. He left as an enemy. He came back as part of the family. He, he has nowhere else to go. The Jews in Jerusalem didn't want him. He has nowhere to go. And so he tries to, to go and have fellowship with the church, but you can understand their apprehension to this. You were just murdering us 3 years ago. But notice who comes alongside Saul. Barnabas. The son of encouragement is his name. This is Barnabas who's going to go find him in Acts chapter 11. This is Barnabas who's going to go on this missionary journey. This is Barnabas who's going to have this new relationship with Mark. The son of encouragement. And notice that it's Barnabas who goes to the church. He takes Saul and brings Saul to the church. And Saul doesn't lay out his story, it's Barnabas who does. This is the guy that used to persecute the church. He saw Jesus, now he's proclaiming boldly. We need need Barnabas's, we need Ananias's. We need those type of people in this church, people who will take a brother and present them to the church, love that brother, love that sister, whoever it may be, to guide them along and serve them and bless them and minister to them. Friends, the church will grow abundantly, and I'm not talking numerically, I'm talking spiritually. The more that we love and serve one another and come alongside each other, the church will grow. Paul left a silencer of the gospel. He was trying to silence the gospel. Now he returns as a proclaimer of the gospel. It says that he disputed the Hellenized Jews and that they wanted to kill him. Ironically, these were the same Jews that killed Stephen. Stephen. Hellenized Jews were just Greek-speaking Jews. They were the ones that put Stephen to death. They were the ones that put their coats before Saul, saying, we want to kill the guy. And now they're disputing him. Thirdly, we see that the church was left in chaos. The church was left in chaos, and now it experiences peace. Saul had got this whole ball rolling. He got the whole ball rolling. The persecution was under him. He started it. And then when God transforms his life and brings him back to Jerusalem and then finally sends him off to Tarsus, there's a rest within the church. There's some geopolitical things happening behind the closed doors which causes the Jews to lose their focus with the Christians and focus on some other things. But we see that God takes a man who hates the church to a lover of the church, and then there's peace in the church. Friends, an awe-inspiring vision of our glorified Christ will change how we think and act. Obedience will naturally flow from us. The gospel will naturally flow from our tongues. The church will be built up. It will be strengthened. It will grow. And Christ will be glorified in that. But having a vision of of the glory of Christ isn't entering into a trance-like state. Going out into the sun, which I did this week, by the way. I went and just sat outside and, and was trying to vision what Saul experienced. Nothing happened. Sunburn, maybe, but... It's not entering into a trance-like state. Peter says, this is, this is Peter who, who saw the glorified Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter says we have something more sure. You want to see the glory of Christ in all of his beauty? Pick up the book and read it. Be in fellowship with the saints. And I guarantee you, we will help each other in that vision. Saul, as we know, lived a life of faithfulness. He was not perfect. He was not perfect. But he did live a life of faithfulness. And at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy, he says this. He says, For I have already been poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Friends, he was able to do this. He was able to run the race, keep the faith, because he never lost sight of his glorified Christ, his savior. Let us not lose that sight either. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you that you have chosen or did choose to save Saul and use him mightily for the kingdom. Lord, we thank you that you you reveal yourself to us through your word. And we ask now that as we go our own ways, as we seek to pursue Christ, Lord, that we would always have that vision of him before us. Lord, do not let us be uh, conformed to this world, but let us be transformed with the renewal of our minds. And that starts with this vision of Christ. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather as the body of Christ today. and We pray these things in your name. Amen.